welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Shempoli, News Director at APPA. We're joined today by Kevin Wills, CEO of a Lincoln Electric System in Nebraska. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. So, Kevin, um, just going to get things started. Um, obviously, a lot, a lot of uh, interesting things are going on at LES these days. One of the things that jumped out at me in terms of doing research uh, in preparation for this interview was the fact that in late 2020, uh, the Administrative Board of Lincoln Electric System adopted a 100% net decarbonization goal by 2040. So could you talk about the steps that LES is taking to achieve this goal? Yeah. You know, one of the things that it might not hurt to do is also talk just a little bit how we got to the goal. Um, we had a number of our board members that felt uh, that they, it was really important to set a goal. We spent over a year doing a lot of education with the board that ranged from climate change to market and how the SPP market worked. We did inter, uh, basically interactive workshops with them. Uh, and there were a host of things that we went through talking about what technology was out there and different impacts. So it was a, a fairly, it was probably a 14 month process running up to that final determination by the board. So once we got to the goal, which as you identified uh, is you know in effect the a net zero carbon uh, from our production facilities by 2040. Um, you know that's kind of the, the jumping off point. And when we when I talk to people about this, one of the real common questions we receive is, um, "Well, how are you going to do it?" And I think the important thing is number one is we really don't know for sure uh, at this point because the technology doesn't really exist to completely get there. Uh, and number two is we believe that the culture of our organization. Uh, will support the, the goal, attaining the goal. And if we look at where we've been, uh, we've reduced our CO2 emissions uh, by 53% uh, since 2010, basically from 2010 to two, uh, 2020. We've had a 45% reduction in our carbon intensity, and we currently are producing, or in 2020 produced about the equivalent of 49% of our retail energy from renewable resources. Uh, that's at the same time that if you look at our resource mix, which is about 1300 megawatts, we have basically a almost balanced portfolio of basically 30% coal uh, and 35% uh, renewables and 35% natural gas. So we believe that that kind of demonstrates our commitment that we've gotten to this point uh, without having a goal. Now that we've got a goal, we've got to figure out how we, you know, how we make that go forward. Um, but there's a whole host of things that we believe kind of demonstrate the culture of the organization. Uh, you know, if you if you look at our passenger vehicle fleet at this point, it's 76% hybrid, plug-in hybrid, all electric. Um, you know, we uh, basically our sustainable energy program, which provides incentives uh, to our customers and uh, both residential and industrial. Uh, to do energy efficiency, lighting improvements, HVAC improvements. Uh, in that case, we, in this, uh, basically in the last 12 years, we've offset the equivalent uh, of 13,000 homes. Um, we're a member, uh, actually a founding member of the, uh, or anchor member of EPRI's uh, Low Carbon Resource Initiative, uh, which is looking at obviously different alternatives. Uh, a lot of it focused on hydrogen uh, for, uh, for the future. Uh, we have um, we established in the last couple of years a microgrid in downtown, which is really both a resiliency project, but also giving us uh, some other, uh, I guess, test beds, if you will, 
Uh, we've got a, a, a fairly small 29 megawatt CT in the downtown area that happens to be around a lot of critical infrastructure. Uh, there's 300 kW of solar in that footprint. There's 500 kW of thermal energy storage. Uh, we actually put an RFP out in the last couple months uh, for uh, to do energy storage at that site as well as a part of the, the microgrid process. And you know that doesn't count countless other things we've got from community solar to landfill gas to uh, you know thermal storage on uh, on peaking units uh, that allow us to increase their efficiency um, so that we have a, a better production in in the hot area of the summer through mass flow. Um, so there's just a whole host of things that we believe are part really the culture of the organization that are going to drive this. Uh, and when we did the goal itself, the board included the caveat that the path has got to be balanced, reliability, environmental stewardship, fiscal responsibility, uh, existing contract obligations, and of course, the available technologies. So long answer to your question, but uh, it's, it's kind of all of the above. Oh, great. Thanks for the, uh, the overview, Kevin. Um, so just um, switching gears here a little bit, uh, with respect to electric vehicles, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a couple of questions for you on that topic. Um, the first one being, if you could describe the ways in which LES is helping customers who are interested in purchasing an electric vehicle. And then the second question is, um, I know LES, along with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, um, collected data for a study on the habits of drivers of EVs in the Lincoln area. And so I would be curious if you could uh, provide additional details on that study. Okay. Yeah, you know, we, I think we, well, we put the first public charging station in, in, uh, in Lincoln probably five or six years ago, um, maybe further. And, you know, from there, it's been kind of a gradual process uh, working with the city uh, they end up getting a bunch of grants. So we, at one point when we looked, we had the highest number of public charging stations, uh, certainly in the region. Um, but to answer your question about how are we helping customers, uh, you know, we have, we've had rebates that we've done that were uh, partially funded through uh, the, the Volkswagen rebate money. Uh, there has been also um, our work with the Nebraska Environmental Trust has provided us the ability to do uh, matching rebates uh, for people for both level two chargers and fast chargers. Uh, several of our, uh, our, our re basically retail customers have accessed that. We did the first ride and drive event uh, in the state or maybe even in several states in the Midwest uh, this summer, which was really kind of fun. And uh, we had very good response from the dealers. Uh, although, as you know, the with supply chain issues, in many cases, they were having to borrow electric vehicles that they'd sold to other customers to have them available. Um, and so we had, I think, nine different models for people to drive, as I recall. Um, and then we had the we have an EV interest group uh, that we work with uh, that have for several years. And a bunch of the owners came and brought their cars basically and displayed to be available to talk to people about them. And what seemed to be real successful about that was people that might not normally feel comfortable going to a dealership to learn more about an EV um, and had the opportunity to go talk to people that own them, had opportunity to go drive one without really kind of being encumbered by going to a dealership and potentially, uh, you know, not wanting to show that much interest. So it was very successful. I think, you know, we'll continue to do those because we believe from an educational perspective that, um, you know, it was very valuable. 
From the study perspective, um, it was originally scheduled to go two years. uh, And the second year is when, of course, COVID hit. And we felt that that wasn't going to be representative of what people's charging habits were. And so the study, in effect, was uh, laid out to determine charging habits of EV drivers, uh, in particular to determine how that's, as we see further deployment of them, how it's going to impact uh, us from both a distribution perspective, of course, and and peak uh, impact. So the outcome of that, and this is somewhat simplistic and there's a ton of data, uh, the outcome of that was most of the people in our service territory, unsurprisingly, are charging at home. Basically, the data tracker we had in these, these cars did not identify them, but they basically had geofencing. So we'd know when they were outside the territory. Uh, we did know when they, of course, were charging at home. Uh, we had several different models uh, in the study. Originally, it was targeted, I think, at 100, 100, unit, or 100 uh, cars. Um, so as, as we went through this second year, we sent it to a third year, and then we decided that, you know, one of the things that might be helpful is to see how can we influence people's charging habits just basically almost through education and, um, and a relatively low dollar incentive. And so we started doing basically a demand response pilot um, with them uh, this year. And the concept was that they, you would get paid $10 a month uh, if you did not charge during the times we requested you not to charge. And of course, there was a limit to that. Um, and what we saw is we, that we, for a fairly nominal charge, we could move people who in many cases, I don't think realize that they shouldn't be just getting home at five o'clock and plugging their car in. Uh, and didn't even, in many cases, didn't even realize that they could set the charge times for their cars. And then we give send, we would send them basically somewhat primitive demand response. We would do both an email and text to them the day before we were going to call for um, the for them not to charge during certain hours. Um, and it was it was actually fairly successful. And the other interesting thing for those of us who have been around conventional load control types of things like water heaters for years, um, when you when you look at the average of of the type of demand gain you get if you're interrupting a heat pump, for example, we we see about, on average, about one and a half kW. If you basically convince somebody not to charge on during a certain peak period, uh, that can be from six to 12 megawatts, or it's six to 12 kW, I'm sorry, which is actually kind of interesting in the effectiveness. We know that we don't have a heavy saturation right now of electric vehicles, uh, but clearly, uh, you can make a significant demand response impact if if you start working toward that end. Uh, that, that's a that's interesting uh, in terms of that that pilot project. Um, so, in terms of the just a quick follow up question. So, in terms of the, the communications with customers, is, is there something if, if this were to progress into maybe a more permanent type of program? Presumably, you guys would want to have some more, I guess, a little, more sophistication in terms of the communication, or, or did the emails and the texts? suffice at least short term well I, you know, I think in the near term the near term it worked with a fairly small group the device we have that was you know in the vehicles goes into the um, the testing port in the car uh, they're fairly expensive and that's of course how we could tell whether people were complying or not uh, that's a fairly pricey way to get the information we believe technology will give us through Wi-Fi connected chargers the ability to potentially not only have maybe get control, 
but also to get data uh, less expensively than using the, the, the data research that we were doing. One other interesting thing, by the way, was we deployed that during Winter Storm Uri when we were ha- when Southwest Power Pole was having the requesting the load interruptions, um, and so we actually deployed uh, deployed it, and it was successful at that time. Now, clearly, we didn't have a you know I think we had sixty cars on it at the time, but we went back and looked. We were curious at how many other utilities in the Southwest Power Pole, which is about fourteen states, uh, would have been deploying demand response on electric vehicles. We couldn't find anybody that was doing that at this point. So, you know, I think that's still in its infancy, but I think it has a lot of opportunity for us going forward with respect to, to some demand response programs. And so, and, and looking at, at this past summer, it was another hot summer, obviously, across a large swaths of, of the country. So just kind of drilling down in terms of LES specifically, the news of the fact that um, your peak rewards uh, participants helped LES reduce peak summer demand by around four megawatts. Two-part question. Could you talk about the peak rewards program and how the program was successful over the summer months of 2021? Sure. Uh, The program itself is, we kind of affectionately call it a bring your own thermostat program, uh, where you get, if you've got a Wi-Fi connected thermostat, we'll, uh, that I should say is meets the criteria uh, because the, the company, the third-party company we use, there are some thermostats that that um, are not in the list, but presuming that you can do that, you're paid $25 for signing up uh, and then get $25 uh, per year uh, for basically to be in the program. The It's basically a push notification uh, that goes to the thermostats themselves and we're limited basically, um, I think from one to seven weekdays and 15 times per year. Uh, you can also opt out if hypothetically you had something that was you know planned and it came up during that time and, and you couldn't uh, didn't want your house to have a temperature rise. Uh, we typically do like three hours of pre-cooling uh, and then have a four degree change um, basically above where that the, the first set point was. Uh, in during that period of time, it isn't does not always last from one to seven. Most most cases is trying to catch a two or three hour peak. So, um, and it's it's been very successful, and most people don't really notice because the times we're controlling uh, are you know in many cases may just be four to six or you know three to six, and so it's a, a reasonably uh, it's not I guess intrusive to most people's uh, comfort level. Uh, changing topics here, um, with respect to um, physical and cybersecurity, as you know, there'll be the GRIDX Cyber and Physical Security exercise uh, this month. So I thought it would be timely to, to, to have you talk about your responsibilities as co-chair of the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, and also um, that would include your role in the in the upcoming exercise. Yeah, the you know, first we probably ought to clarify that for those folks who don't know what the electric subsector uh, electric subsector coordinating council is, um, you know that's a, a group of basically 32 uh, industry CEOs that meets with our federal government partners two to three times a year, and then of course during special events uh, has you know communication. Uh, and the the bulk of those 32 members are uh, what you would call asset owners uh, CEOs, and then we do have. Uh, a group that also includes the trade association heads, uh, for example, the CEO of EPRI, 
uh, the CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. So uh, the, the CEO of the Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, so there are kind of this group and that what we do through that process is address uh, several issues, both cybersecurity, physical security, resilience. Um, and there's a lot of, lot of effort put into that. There's a lot of information sharing. Uh, when the group was established many years ago, um, there were no um, basically uh, cl clearances within the industry for you know secret and top secret. Uh, that was a huge change that came about so that the industry, uh, people that needed access to classified information, that the government had the ability to share it. And so as we've matured in that process, it's almost like the, the tasks got larger rather than smaller. Uh, but one of the key parts of this is the relationship between the industry and the government uh, to continue to push forward and making basically the system more se secure and more resilient. And, uh, you know, this, the cybersecurity thing speaks for itself because we know that the threats continue to be extraordinarily active and the more communication we get, uh, that's important. By the same token, um, we've experienced an awful lot more uh, natural disasters that impact uh, the electric utility system and uh, the assistance that the federal government's given during some of those major events that help support our already established mutual aid efforts uh, is significant uh, in trying to help facilitate uh, recovery for those impacted utilities. Uh, so there's, um, and, and right now, of course, there's huge efforts with respect to supply chain in addition to uh, cybersecurity. So there's just a host of things that come out of that. You know, my role in that as a co-chair, and we have a co-chair from uh, the rural electric co-ops, co-chair from the public power sector, and a, a co-chair from the investor-owned com uh, community. So that everybody kind of has a, a level playing field, if you will. Um, and as a part of that process, obviously, is to help provide the kind of the strategic vision uh, associated with the tasks. Uh, and to some extent, uh, you know, we, the co-chairs also serve a role of testifying uh, in Congress, uh, doing briefings with, you know, uh, Congress. Those types of things are a part of that. Uh, as a part of, of GridX, um, you know, we are a part of an executive tabletop process with our government partners uh, that kind of go through an exercise at a very high level, uh, trying to find areas where there are weaknesses uh, and areas for improvement in that we can get between with our relationship with the government and being more responsive to these potential threats. Thanks. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've written uh, stories for our newsletter that, that talk about the GridX exercise. And one of the things that's, that strikes me is the fact that um, you know, exercise over exercise, it's, it's not static in terms of, of adjustments that are made in, in how, how the exercise is approached. Um, could you talk a little further on that, just as a quick follow-up question? Um, yeah, the, you know, the exercises themselves, and, and I don't, or you talk about the progression from one grid X to the next. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, the, basically, uh, the exercises are designed, and it takes a year, a year and a half uh, for the NERC staff to do the design, working with a consultant. But uh, you, you're right; they have progressed. Uh, you know, they, it was uh, a, in the beginning, it was kind of a, a more simple. Gee, it's just a you know a a, a physical attack, a kinetic attack that included some cyber, and then it continually got more complex uh, with respect to the scope. 
uh, and the potential impact. And, 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 you know, a large part of that is trying to do a, a test an event that is just so disastrous that you'd like to think that's not something that we would ever, ever experience, but it's to get everyone's thought process going with respect to where are these opportunities where we really need to do shore up, you know, our current preparedness. And uh, so, yeah, they do, they have escalated from year to year. And then they've become, uh, I guess the last couple of years, we've also seen them take a little bit of a more regional focus uh, so that they, you can get down to a little more detail with respect to um, what, how would, what would impact uh, the specific kinds of facilities that might be in a region. Um, turning to the topic of energy storage. Um, so LES recently issued a request for proposals for our energy storage project um, that would be located within the utility service territory. Um, so could you offer additional details on what prompted um, LES to issue the storage RFP and what are what are the potential benefits you see energy storage providing uh, to LES and its customers? You know, this is the, the inner storage, energy storage RFP is really just one more of a host of things that, that we historically do to you know, try to make sure that we can basically learn more about you know, emerging technologies. Uh, and this is an example that you know, I'm, I made a reference to the microgrid earlier. Uh, we thought that this would be a good add to that. Uh, we obviously want to see how it would work from a practical standpoint as a backup resource, uh, but also see how you might be able to use it effectively as a market resource as well. So, you know, there's batteries have a lot of different characteristics with respect to what they're capable of doing. And, you know, without having one to actually operate and see if you can do ancillary services, if you can merely use it in the market to try to optimize uh, some parts of market, you know, what we're talking about is relatively small. It's between one and three megawatts. Uh, we said two to four hours. Uh, and so the responses actually are in, I have not seen, I've, I saw a summary, but I don't know the details of where we are in that selection process, but the concept is, uh, you know, we all know that the Holy grail, as we look at, uh, you know, renewables is trying to find good energy storage and we just don't have any experience with it. Uh, not unlike, uh, you know, when we first got into doing community solar several years ago and different things, trying to make sure we're learning more about it before, in fact, we need to scale up. And uh, we think that this is the best way to do it is kind of do a, a try me on a relatively small basis. Great. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us today. And uh, you have an open invitation to return as a guest at some point in the future. I'm sure we'd have a lot to talk about putting the uh, decarbonization efforts and among other things that we talked about today. So thanks again for, for your time. Thanks for having me.